The text for our message is John 4, 5 through 20. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, nice to uh, be here and there uh, with everybody uh, to worship God. Um, I actually have a lot of slides today, so maybe we can, even though it's dark outside, uh, maybe for the first half, let's uh, dim the lights. Um, uh, today's the fourth uh, message in our little evangelism series, uh, stemming from the phrase, uh, we proclaim him out of our church key verse for the year. I believe um, there will be one more series uh, sermon next Sunday, and then we will arrive at Easter. So we've explored uh, several simple methods of sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors and colleagues who do not yet have faith in the Lord. We talked about contact evangelism, something I made up the term. Uh, Matthew, after he starts to follow Jesus, he invites his friends to come into contact with Jesus. And then Tabitha and her clothing line <laughs> was a form of servant evangelism when she died. People were so moved by uh, her service to them that um, they were there when Peter raised her from the dead and came to faith. And then, uh, starting last week, we did conversational evangelism, and uh, we looked at uh, Jesus' study of water right, with the Samaritan woman in uh, John 4. So, uh, conversational evangelism is using dialogue, and questions um, to guide a person one step, several steps closer uh, to Christ. Now, if you recall, I concocted my title, Convertisations, right, to accentuate the conversion aspect. We're talking about trying to help uh, someone move from unbeliever to follower of Christ, but also to kind of reimagine, to for us to uh, refine our mindset, rework uh, what we are trying to do, how we talk to our friends about Christ. So 
Today's message is going to be a continuation, so conversations too. Um, in this context, I was drawn to uh, a real great scripture verse, which I thought really encapsulated this idea. Right? Let's uh, read this together aloud, okay? Colossians 4, 4 through 6. Ready, go. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. This verse highlights so many important uh, aspects of conversational evangelism. Prayer, right? You can't get ahead of prayer. You can't miss out on prayer. Right? Prayer is key. Clarity, right? Um, knowing how to answer everyone. Being wise in how we act. Wisdom in actions, right? Uh, timing, opportunity. Uh, not saying too much, not saying uh, too little. Uh, diligence, uh, creativity, making the most of every opportunity, gracious speech. Right? I mean, we talk about the grace of God touching us and flowing from us. Well, how does that? How's that expressed? Right? Sometimes it's through our words. Right? We pick the right words that extend and and convey God's grace uh, to uh, others. Um, creating curiosity. I think that's what it means by seasoned with salt. Right? You're making people curious, thirsty, interested, captivated. Right? The gospel is a captivating message. It is uh, so insightful into human nature and uh, the things of, of heaven. Um, insight into explaining and communicating the gospel, the right story, the right illustration, right, the right challenge even. Uh, so I hope this verse, I commend this verse uh, to us. Now these are all, of course, exemplified by Jesus in his dialogue with a Samaritan woman in John 4. His risk-taking as a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, his use of living water, uh, the living water metaphor, his uh, sensing of his sense of timing, his graciousness, and then his addressing, which we'll talk about today, the moral elephant, right in the room. And all these things makes him an ideal conversational uh, evangelist. So, uh, by way of review from last week, then let me kind of reiterate some of the points uh, made in our handbook, uh, Conversational Evangelism by David and Norman Geisler, or <laughs> at least my distillation right, of their points. Uh, regarding the significance of asking the right questions in the right manner to help our friends um, surface, right? That word surface keeps coming up. To bring to light, to show, um, identifying uh, key issues and areas that indicate um, why we need Christ, why they need Christ, and what it is that maybe hinders them, right? If the gospel is, like I said, so compelling, why isn't everyone rushing to embrace the message? Uh, there are barriers, there are obstacles. So how do we ask questions in a way that helps us realize, helps our friends realize these things and overcome them ultimately? 
So uh, type A is uh, uh, questions that kind of surface doubts or longings. We all have this. We're all created to worship God. And so when we don't worship God, what happens? We start running into kind of like this uh, issues. We run into uh, problems. We run into um, uh, scenarios where um, can't make sense of it. You know, there's things that our heart longs for that our world does not provide, that people do not provide. So to be able to engage in a you know, productive conversation which brings these to light, which uh, helps kind of um, delineate them so that our friends will realize those are not random, those are not like some sort of mental illness. No, those are things God has placed in us these longings, these doubts to draw us, to help us search uh, for him. Type B, right? We have the uh, discrepancies and barriers. That's our focus today, right? We're going to look at some, maybe not common or typical, but at least for the Samaritan woman, certain discrepancies in her kind of mindset, her worldview, her religion, uh, her self-understanding, her the way that she's kind of conducting herself, carrying herself, what she says and what she does, right? Um, so those, those kind of issues. And then hopefully next week we can look at bridges or next steps that Jesus helps the woman uh, to come closer. So uh, you know, last week was about type A, the doubts and longings, right? We saw how, remember how Jesus so deftly employed the water well uh, setting and the physical thirst uh, to surface her need for what? More than mere H2O, right? She needed living water. And notice that um, the woman comes to the conclusion that, yes, she needs this living water. She's never tasted it before, but in a sense, she's been looking for it, searching for it all along, right? It's through her own choice. She comes to Jesus and asks him for that water. There's no, conjole, there's no cajoling, no pressure, um, there's no uh, bargaining whatsoever. Yeah, she's the one that asks for living water. Now at this point, most evangelists, right, would be thrilled when you're, when you're talking to somebody and they say, I want to receive this living water, give me new life in Christ. But Jesus uh, kind of slows down the conversation, right? He knows there are type B discrepancies, barriers, um, questions and areas that need to be examined, right? Indeed, a moral barrier that manifests in social isolation uh, needs uh, to be surfaced, right? And we might find that to be the case. The more you talk to people, the more you can connect with them, the more they share about your life. You'll see these. And our book helpfully identifies various forms of discrepancies that can come up when we start uh, talking to people and really listen in what they say they believe, but what they kind of really believe or what kind of drives their actions and their, their thoughts. So here are some common forms of discrepancies. Um, the first one is uh, your 
so-called belief, stated belief, versus um, what your heart really says, what you've maybe always known to be the case. So, for example, someone may say, I don't believe there's an afterlife. There's no proof, right? When you die, that's it. End of story. And you don't exist anymore. And yet, there's a discrepancy. It, you know, if someone says, you know, for example, culturally, or you know, they've learned from their family, I need to respect my forebear spirits, right? But I really believe that that they, you know, unless I respect them, unless I do X, Y, and Z, that they're going to be affected by my actions, you know, here on Earth. So you see, there's a disconnect, right? There's there's an inconsistency there. Now, that's a that's an important kind of distinction, but it's not something that you can kind of just like hammer somebody over the head and say, you're, you know, contradictory. You know. Uh, it's, it's to not only to identify, but to you know, be able to wisely address this. The next type is the belief versus behavior. So somebody may say, there are no absolute moral standards, right? Everything's relative. Your, you, your sense of right and wrong is different from my sense of right and wrong. So you can't judge me, I can't judge you. But then our behavior uh, kind of flies in the face of that. Like when, we, when I read about kind of the, the conflict in, in the Ukraine, I get morally outraged. Right? I get upset that something like this is happening in our day, in our time, you know, with all the you know, supposed uh, advancements that have been made you know, societally, technologically, philosophically. But if I was a true moral relativist, I couldn't, I really wouldn't be able to say that in the same breath, right? They are, that's a discrepancy. A third type is belief versus belief, right? For example, someone may say, oh, I think I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian all along. My parents were Christian, my grandparents were Christian. I, I attend church, right? But they believe that you have to do good works, that God counts your, your merits versus your demerits, and then decides whether you should go to heaven or not, right? A Christian understanding of salvation is by grace, by faith, right? Um, by uh, Christ's work on the cross. And so that would be, again, uh, a discrepancy, a contradiction. And then last one that they point out is illogical belief. It's something that you say, but kind of inherently there's a contradiction, right? So the example is, no absolute statement is justifiable, right? People say that, right? But the moment you say that, you are contradicting yourself. You're saying, there's no absolute statements, justifiable statements, except the one I'm making right now, that there are no absolute justifiable statements, got it? Okay. So um, I think in this, uh, it applied to our narrative, Sorry, I started putting a double-sided paper. I'm getting confused. Okay, um, double, yeah, double-sided printing. Applied to our uh, Samaritan woman narrative. I would say form one, she doesn't have a problem with that, right? In fact, it, her heart longing is saying she needs living water, and she says, give me living water. So that's okay. But I think forms two and three, there are disconnects, right? Because... Um, you know, she's saying that, hey, I'm ready for the living water, but there's a major issue, 
right? Regarding her marital history, regarding some of the things that she has gone through, right? I think form three also is, will be apparent, right? When we talk about later, when we talk about her questions about worship, questions about, you know, how to approach God, etc. So Jesus walks her through this. We'll, we'll, we'll do some of that today. And then form four, I don't think is applicable here. Um, there's no illogical belief. Anyway, uh, let's now take a closer look, and you can flip on the lights, um, uh, at the uh, discrepancy barrier of the woman's marital history that Jesus addresses. Now, despite the positive response to the offer of living water, Jesus throws cold water on the good vibes that are present by asking the woman, go call your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come back. Like, almost like a non sequitur, out of the blue, right? They're talking about living water. They're talking about, you know, Jacob and all that kind of stuff. But she, he suddenly, you know, brings in this, this husband uh, question. And so I think the first uh, thing that comes to my mind is, how did Jesus know that this was a problem area for her, right? Of course, being the son of God, uh, he had divine knowledge about her past. And certainly, you know, in our, as we're trying to have conversations, we can pray for special insight, right? But maybe there are a couple of social clues that Jesus and maybe we as well uh, could have picked up on. For example, one possible clue is that the Samaritan woman is willing to speak with Jesus in the first place, right? Despite the double cultural taboo, about Jews not associating with Samaritans and men not speaking in public with women who are not their spouses. Right? She's not a wallflower, to kind of say it bluntly. Um, a, a more conspicuous detail, uh, though, is the timing of the woman's visit to the water source. Uh, she came in the middle of the day, right? Um, the sixth hour being 12 noon, when the sun would be at its hottest. Other water carriers would frequent the well in the morning or evening uh, when the temperature was more tolerable. Right? So her timing implied an avoidance of others. Something about her life made her keep her distance. And as we discover, she'd been married five times and the man she now had was not her uh, legal spouse. Right. Now, even to our modern sensibilities, um, both the number of marriages and the cohabitation situation uh, would give people moral pause. How much more uh, would her marital history and status be disdained uh, in the first, in first century Palestine? Hence, her lonesome presence at the well to escape the hushed tones of gossip and stares of the so-called more respectable uh, women. Yet, despite her unholiness, right, the holy Jesus loves her with a divine compassion and engages her uh, on profound existential and theological topics. I believe Jesus treated her with respect without condoning her likely immoral past. In fact, that is how Jesus has treated me and has treated you. That's how he treats each and every one of us. Now, we are rejected sinners. We all have a sinful past. Uh, and we are sinners in need of 
salvation. Uh, do you recall the kind of roles that the Geisler book suggested to help better execute the gospel task? Um, indeed, the Lord was being kind of an archaeologist, an archaeologist, uh, whose job it is to discover and uncover evidence of past civilizations and other aspects of the history of life on earth. But just as bones and artifacts can be brittle or fragile, an archaeologist needs to take care how she handles potentially valuable items. Like using a sledgehammer when you need a little fine tiny brush, right? Um, you can damage artifacts beyond preservation. Or not being able to kind of separate a key item from its encasing, right? Or habitat can fail to sufficiently produce the item that needs to be studied. Now, uh, likewise, a good conversational evangelist is both caring and wise. Um, they can be sharp uh, and or gentle as needed. We really have to, I think, humbly appreciate uh, the gravity of the task at hand. We have to be super prayerful. Right? It's not a conquest. It's not an argument to prevail over. It's the all-important business of reconciling a precious human being uh, to their precious Heavenly Father. Jesus did not berate this woman over her simple past, sinful past. Neither did he gloss over the reality of her transgressions. Rather, Jesus helped right, surface the incongruity of wanting living water when her heart was sealed tightly shut by her unresolved past sin. Right? Yeah, the belief contradicting behavior. Um, in this instance, um, Jesus' method was quite direct. Go call your husband. Um, and at times, maybe that is how we should broach some discrepancies and barriers uh, in the lives of our conversation partners. I think it depends on the situation. It depends on the relationship. It depends on the actual topic, right? That's why we need wisdom, right? Seasoned with salt. Like other times, we have to be more tactful in surfacing the discrepancy or barrier. We have to use more kind of respectful or incisive questions or prompts. Because I think barriers, right? The, the reasons why people don't, let's say, have not really come to faith, um, it carries a lot of decisional weight often in our lives. Right? If you've taken a position on something as heavy as faith or religion, like I think most people, you put in some time, you've invested some emotions, you've, you've discussed with others, and you've kind of you know, you've arrived at, 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 at your conclusion. And so as gospel, let's say, archaeologists, we have to really study and take these into uh, consideration, right? At the same time, we should not be afraid to talk about such matters, even if they're kind of tricky, even if they're e not easy, to talk to. Right? Barriers to salvation should not be left to stand. Preventing a person from you know, truly evaluating the gospel's call. 
So that Jesus ended the conversation at living water. So the woman says, give me living water. He gives it to her. You know, uh, I don't think she would have come to the realization that before her stood, right, um, the Messiah. Yeah, so um, my exhortation is to, that we have to work at this. We have to get better. We have to learn the skill, the art, right, of helping to identify and work through barriers. Think about your own barriers that uh, maybe slowed you down or hindered you in coming to faith. Now, now I think typically we talk about, I know there's a lot of lists today, so I hope you keep them all straight, but there's like uh, three kind of categories of barriers, common barriers, right? We could say barriers of the mind, barriers of the will, barriers of emotions, right? Different uh, uh, types of blockages, right? Um, loosely, head, hard hands, right? Um, stated yet another way, they can be intellectual barriers, emotional issues, volitional blockages. Uh, they can be volitional in, in nature. I'll try to give an example. An example of an intellectual barrier um, is I mean, it'd be difficult to, to acknowledge the supernatural. A, a person might honestly, genuinely feel that their so-called scientific mindset uh, precludes them from allowing for the miraculous. Right? A, a good conversational evangelist I think should be able to provide some counterpoint to those kind of naturalistic or materialistic assumptions. And I remember um, one conversation with somebody who uh, thought that, um, you know, religion was a mental construct, right? That everything was kind of like uh, we use our mental faculties to kind of, there's some projection involved. There's, we kind of want this kind of, religious kind of perspective or worldview or kind of reading of life. And so we think that this is, and then we interpret evidence, so-called evidence uh, in that kind of manner. And so to try to uh, dismantle that or, you know, I, I wasn't able to disprove that, but to, you know, say, well, how do you know that <laughs> if you take that to its logical extreme, right? then our conversation is the mental construct and we're just brains in a vat, that, that kind of stuff, right? I don't think it helped him like say, oh, you're so right. Oh, yes, now I'll put my faith in uh, Jesus Christ. But it kind of chipped away at that uh, kind of barrier. As you may have experienced, uh, often the intellectual barriers are the ones that people will, um, are kind of, I think they're pretty uh, willing to share it. Uh, and some of it is well thought out. Others of it is actually kind of haphazard. But oftentimes, you could answer every single intellectual objection or question that a person has, but that doesn't lead them. Right? They're not like C.S. Lewis, <laughs> who like thought through all this and then realized you know, that his mind is telling him he has to come to faith. It doesn't automatically mean that there's no other barriers, right? It's not just one type, right? But people can have numerous barriers. Emotional barriers uh, can stand quite high. Bad experiences, uh, painful memories of 
judgment or inappropriate judgmentalism or rejection, abuse, sorrow, hurt, untimely death, anger. These might all have these very complicated associations with religious elements, the suffering of a loved one, yeah, someone who's innocent, let's say. Uh, these are uh, not only intellectual problems, but matters of the heart. Right? And go on and on. There's, there's so many of these types, right? Hypocrisy is a huge one. And Christians have said, this is what the Bible says, like love one another, for example, as Pastor Steve uh, challenged us. And yet, you know, we don't. In fact, we hate one another often enough to say one thing and do uh, the total opposite. All of the moral failings of the church and Christians writ large uh, in people's hearts. So it takes a lot of patience, a lot of humility, a lot of realism, I think, to deal with many of these uh, thorny problems. But we're called to do that, right? We're called to do that. Right? Jesus didn't walk away. Uh, I don't. This woman is, is very kind of responsive, but even if she wasn't, I don't think he would have walked away. We hurt with those who hurt. We take our lumps. We stand in their shoes. We stick uh, with our friends. One of the things that come up in my conversations with friends is like the ex exclusivity of, of Christian faith. Right? How can Christianity claim to be the only way? Right? How can they... Um, elevate themselves, and not only in a hierarchy, but to the exclusion. If Christianity is right, all other religions are wrong. In today's world, today's uh, milieu, that's kind of a very arrogant uh, perspective. And then if you dig, often what I found is that there's a reason for why they don't like exclusivity. Right? It might be a personal sense of like, Someone excluded them in some other context. Or maybe someone that they loved uh, passed away without ever hearing the gospel or ever knowing the gospel or responding to the gospel. And it's that kind of painful kind of experience that keeps them uh, from yeah, embracing or accepting uh, Christianity. And then third, the barriers of the will. I think from experience, the biggest block uh, for many people in following Christ is indeed uh, volitional. I think, I think a lot of people will come to a certain kind of acceptance or comfort level with uh, the truth of Christianity. They understand who Jesus is, and they ask what they, they understand what he's calling us to do, right? Namely, to cede control uh, of our lives to him. Because they understand, because they get it, then the reason that they don't want to do it is an unwillingness to do that. Yeah, I believe what you say. Yeah, there's evidence for this. Yeah, you know, I, you've answered all my questions, but I still don't want to, right? And I'm not saying that's a legitimate barrier, but it's a real barrier, right? And something that if we really care for our friend, we've got to figure out how to surmount uh, some of these or at least uh, address it, right? I think this is what keeps people out of the kingdom, right? Like I had a, a guy ages ago that he was growing, he was coming uh, to learn about Christ and he was ready and 
but he couldn't surrender, right? He thought through it and he said, if I become a Christian, I have to change these things in my life. And the biggest thing was break up with his girlfriend who would not ever come to faith, right? She was openly atheistic in that sense. So he knew that he, what he needed to do, but he couldn't do it. He didn't want to do it, right? That's a volitional barrier uh, uh, to faith. Um, one long-standing kind of conversation I had with a fellow who eventually became a Christian um, was about kind of his approach, his, the way that he saw himself living his life. Right? So he is um, a kind of a self-made guy. He immigrated to the U.S., uh, at a kind of late age, I think high school, but he worked really hard, got into one of the best universities um, in the States. Um, you know, he did well. Right? He was a good student. He was a good son. He was a good athlete. Right? Everything he touched, he might have touched. And he wanted to be morally good too, spiritually have some knowledge. Right? So he started coming to church and uh, so many conversations that we had. And so he was, you know, absorbing all of the, the all of the the teachings and all of the apologetics and stuff. But when it came time to really, uh, you know, place his faith in Christ, it took a long time. Right? And, and the issue was, he had been so self reliant, so self sufficient. So he had he was a survivor, right? And the first kind of step of discipleship is to say, I can't do it anymore. I will never make it uh, to heaven. I need God completely uh, to save me. And, and that was a huge, you know, volitional uh, barrier uh, for him. Right? I think, and it took, you know, time to do that. But eventually he, he realized that, um, he thought he was self-sufficient, but that was his own interpretation. It was a very subjective thing. And when we thought through about the various stages, decisions, points in his life, you know, he had help. Right? He had supportive parents. He had good friends. He had mentors that really invested in his life. He, had, he realized God had sent people, God had sent situations along the way to help him come to this point, right? And so he finally uh, took eight humble pie, <laughs> if you will, and came uh, to faith. Um, I think tied into this kind of will, choice of the will, tied into self-sufficiency is uh, something that I find particularly problematic um, particularly a strong barrier. Um, and that is um, a sense of need. Uh, with respect to a, a conviction of sin, I think in general people realize, oh, I'm not the greatest, I'm not, you know, I'm not God. I, I can't do everything. So, you know, they're, they're willing to, again, um, acknowledge that. But Christianity swings far, much farther in the other direction and says, not only are you not God, you're the devil, right? The sinful, devilish, um, evil influences that we have succumbed to. 
So it's one thing to kind of genteel, genteely, in a genteel way, acknowledge, oh, I'm not the greatest and I'm not the best, I'm not perfect. But to go the other side and says, no, I'm a wretched sinner, right? That I need absolute, complete, comprehensive forgiveness. Right? That is not something we readily admit, right? especially in our can-do, uh, self-accomplishing kind of mindset that uh, we live. Right? Fortunately, the Samaritan woman, she had a strong conviction of sin. She was quite self-aware. So this barrier discussion is only three verses, right? Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. What you've said is true, you have no husband, and in fact, you've had five husbands. And then they jump into worship, right? Uh, it's, it's very uh, fascinating to me that this woman uh, had barriers, a big one, and yet, right, uh, Jesus, you know, kind of touched the, pushed the right button. Jesus so amazingly and lovingly and effectively kind of, you know, took that barrier down. Uh, for her. So the Geislers recommend that um, we gain the skill of asking clarifying questions, right? That's how they view this. Jesus was asking a thought-provoking question or, or, or an area, right? They suggest that by uh, clarifying questions, uh, we can uh, accomplish uh, a number of these marks of progress. So um, by asking the right question, you can uncover the nature of the barrier, create more honesty in discussion, right? That's so important, right? You don't want to just like dance around and just have verbal sparring with somebody, right? That's like, you know, college, stay up all night in the dorm stuff that really doesn't get anywhere, right? Uh, create more openness to spiritual dialogue. Like I told you one of the biggest problems is how do you go from like talking about life and the world and, and, and our past to spiritual matters? Sometimes it's a very awkward, and like uncomfortable transition. Minimizing defensiveness, right? You know, like I said, we don't want to give in. We don't want to acknowledge that we're sinners in need of Christ, right? We don't want to have to ask for what you have, right? So how do we, how does that work? How do we respect the person and yet give them, uh, help them move along? This is an interesting one. Reverse the burden of proof. Like oftentimes, I think Christian, Christians, we feel like we're we're kind of, uh, we're either like, you know, under the gun, we're trying to like, you know, so many arrows are being thrown at us by, 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 by our world, by, by secularism, right? Or we're so ensconced in like, I have the truth that I'm going to force feed you and like, we don't sound very winsome and, and, and kind of loving. But to somehow like be able to um, kind of sway a person in uh, helpful directions to you know, not only say like, uh, to, to, for them to acknowledge that, oh, maybe this is correct, and now I have to understand or I have to explain my, my stance, uh, my position. Right? So in our narrative, Jesus um, was able to you know, bring up the sensitive subject of, of marriage. Right? He recites the truth about her pretty bluntly, as I've said. Yet the Samaritan, when she doesn't bolt, she doesn't boil over, she doesn't throw well water in his face. Right? There it is. There's kind of a damning word cloud that would have cowed the average person. It's a painful truth, a discomforting truth. It's a potentially conversation-killing truth. Right? She could have cried foul and walked away. She owed no duty to listen or counter what this man said. She could have denied it. She could have spun it. She could have rejected it. A whole host of things. 
but she stayed. She, he kept her attention, right? He not only, you know, um, established the honesty, right? right? He didn't incite her to be overtly defensive. Um, later on, she has to like backpedal about some of her claims about where you know, the worship of God uh, really is. Now somehow, and, and this would be, I think, great if I could experience it, if you could experience it. Somehow, uh, her story, the facts of her uh, marital history, they were safe. Right? Isn't that, you know, we talk about that like a lot. Safe, safe conversation, a safe place, safe space, right? That's big these days. And I think I understand, maybe not fully, but somehow Jesus was able to create a safe conversation with her so that even when he brought up the, the kind of the, the tough stuff, if you will, she knows that it's, you know, he's doing it in love, yeah, in truthful love, in loving truth. Um, he did not condone her. He did not condemn her. He remained committed uh, to her. Uh, you, you may have heard me say this before, but her response in verse 17 is actually quite profound. Right? I have no husband is not only a factual rendering of her marital situation, but a universal confession of all people uh, outside of a saving relationship with Christ. Right? Biblically speaking, none of us have a husband until we become the bride of Christ. He's the true He's the real groom that we've been searching for all our lives. You know, no other husband, no other idol, no other, nothing else can substitute in that role. And I think um, for the Samaritan woman, the barrier was not really you know, purely intellectual or emotional or volitional. It wasn't even moral, right? I think it was relational. Her barrier was relational. The reason that uh, she uh, couldn't come to Christ right, until he came to her, uh, I think it was just kind of you know generalized. Was it's the fear of being alone? Right? That's why she went from one husband to two, number three, and number four. And then you know she couldn't even be not married, she needed to be with uh, somebody. And it's interesting, it's an interesting dynamic, a trade-off here. She is isolated, let's say, kind of an outcast from most of society. Right? Everyone knows her, whatever reputation, her story, and they steer clear of her, she steers clear of them. Yet she still needs to be in relationship. So somehow I feel that Jesus' presence, his willingness to be there uh, for her. His being personal, right? I, you know, later on when we talk about worship, we're gonna I think think about like her view of God being like far away. Like, where do we worship? Far away in Jerusalem, or can we go to Gerizim? Whatever that kind of thing, right? So she never she couldn't quite understand God incarnate, right? So that's what Jesus. That's the, that's how he solved this uh, for her, right? overcame her relational concerns, right? her fears uh, and all. Okay, that's it in terms of um, our conversation, conver conversations number two.
Um, let's uh, come to uh, some time of prayer and thought. Um, as an application, let's think about this week, maybe having a conversation with someone. I'd like you to identify or ask God to identify one person that you can um, have either a pre-evangelistic or evangelistic conversation with. Who is that? And then second, what is that opportunity? How are you going to make that opportunity happen? Maybe you have a meeting with them. Maybe you can call them up. Uh, how can you actually um, apply that, uh, bring that into being? And third, uh, pray for a discrepancy or a barrier that may exist, that may surface, that you may know about or yet do not know about, that you can kind of maybe share about, talk about uh, with your friend. So let's pray along those lines, thinking about Jesus and how he helped this woman overcome her barriers. Let me close this. Heavenly Father, um, we covered a lot of uh, information and uh, concepts and categories uh, today, uh, not just to know more, but uh, to become uh, more of a, a, a witness, uh, to become someone who cares about our friends, someone who really um, prays about and then puts into action um, the things that you've given us, the ways in which we were uh, brought to Christ, um, helped to come to Christ, to help us to have that kind of mind, have that kind of heart, have those kind of time commitments. Um, as we think about uh, the many barriers that were uh, dismantled or, or maybe even destroyed, uh, before us so that uh, we could have a path to Christ help us to uh, think in those ways to uh, really uh, love our friends as we've been loved so that we can rejoice um, in uh, their uh, relationship with you. Thank you for Jesus' example. Thank you for the Samaritan woman who um, uh, really uh, is a fascinating study uh, in uh, not only then but in our day and age 
to help us understand ourselves and uh, and others. Um, we pray for um, greater work. We pray for greater uh, movement of of God's hand uh, in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. <laughs>